Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Our Father, which art in heaven, let him fucking stay there. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, apparently, if you haven't seen the movie Booksmart yet, then you hate women. Have you seen the movie Booksmart yet? Damn it. This is a trick question. Um, no, but uh, then that, that means a lot of people hate women, doesn't it? <laughs> like, most people hate women. Have you read your colleague, Kate Mann's The Logic of Misogyny? To- she, doesn't, she doesn't think it's hatred. Um yeah, no, I I feel like um, this is one of those cases where uh, all of the uh, all of the factors that you'd want to be in place for a movie to be a hit weren't, and one of those might be that it's a woman. But I, come on, right? So I actually <laughs> think I get excused from this uh, category of, of of wait, have, of, have you seen it? No. Okay. But um, I have two reasons why that doesn't mean I hate women. Uh, first, I have a daughter. No. Uh, <laughs> a father how can I hate women? I have a daughter. So uh, the first is that I also haven't seen like the Avengers movies and John Wick and like the the guy movies. So you hate men also. So yes, if anything, yeah. I'm, you're just misanthropic. You're just. Uh, uh, yeah, so I so I haven't seen any of those movies, so me not seeing that. I do think it's a kind of movie that would really annoy me. And my daughter saw it, and she she was actually a little annoyed by it, and she said I would definitely be annoyed by it. You know, um, I don't know anything about the movie, but there is a um, in in the the latest Avengers. There's a, a particular scene where all of the I'll say this without too many spoilers, but all of the female superheroes get together to engage in a particular task during a battle. I heard about it. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, man, that scene divided a bunch of people. But but even I think in the podcast with women I respect, they they were cringing at it. Yeah. And and it really is like a little bit like, oh, wow, it should just be. I love it when movies just as an aside, there happens to be a black character or there are just happen to be a lot of you know, positive, powerful female characters. But like when, when you can feel like the intentionality of, (laughs) it just takes you out of the movie. It's like a kind of pandering that undercuts 
the thing, the emotion that you're trying to yeah. inspire. Yeah, yeah, it 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 does. It, it, <laughs> now I wonder if that's true. Like, were there some women that were like, yeah, like fuck yeah, women rule. So uh, the so I saw it with my daughter, and she liked she did like that scene, and so I I feel like I'm willing to put up with it if sort of the younger minds who are less cynical than us like don't you know don't notice it like my daughter's not you know like a film critic like your daughter is so she just enjoyed it and if there are some young boys especially who who saw that and it and it worked then fine i just think that as a director uh, you know i would try a little bit to to not to not. uh anyway so we have sam harris on the show today <laughs> Uh, coming up in the second segment for a long discussion, so we're going to keep this short. Oh, back to Booksmart for a second. Yeah. Um, they say it's like super bad for for women. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm not opposed to watching it though. Well, um, you, you better. Good. <laughs> as of right now, you hate women. I think that the female Ghostbusters movie was a better litmus test. You know, that was really about misogyny. <laughs> <laughs> the all-female Ghostbusters. Yeah. Um, uh, were you one of the people that were like sending death threats to the people who made it, ruining your childhood? No, no, I was sending death threats to the people who said it wasn't a good movie. Oh yeah, because you saw it. Because <laughs> I, no, I actually didn't see. It. <laughs> no, no one saw. It. <laughs> I don't think um, I know a single person who saw the Ghostbusters the, movie. You know the bar. The bar is high to please to please most people now, and and maybe we should take it as progress that conversations at this level are going on and not conversations at the level of should women have abortions or oh wait so, <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> we've now become like a vox podcast <laughs> yeah. uh, all right let's shall we shall we uh clear our minds and make fun of an article yes uh yeah so we have sam harris coming on to talk about meditation the self Dave's existential unease, the idea of having no head, which I find like illuminating. I had no head all through high school. Oh wait. <laughs> uh, but before then, you we uh, wanted to do a very quick uh, opening segment, and so we went to neuroskeptic. Uh, wait, was this a neuroskeptic tweet? Oh uh, well. <laughs> So I don't know if he's yeah actually yeah. what you texted me wasn't but uh, he originally linked to it it's actually from 2015 this paper right um, right but 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 yet timeless <laughs> but timeless uh, is it ethical to heal a young white elephant from his physiological autism is the title by Otto Rossler Conetheus Jürgen Heider Werner Fleischer and anonymous student. <laughs> the most important byline of all, anonymous student. Could be anyone. Um, so can you describe the paper? I will try my best. But, but I want to point out that if you click on, and we'll put a link to this um, in show notes. So this paper is so rambly and weird that I don't know that I could summarize it without, you know, the, the map is the territory in this sense. Like to summarize it, I'd have to actually read the whole thing because because it goes goes in and out of sense making. But um, but it proposes this is the weirdest thing. So it's proposing that all animals are autistic, actually autistic. So there's this view, apparently, that um, that. All animals are artistic and that this is the state of nature 
and that human evolution through through some weird accident made us non-autistic and what this means is that we can have a a kind of moment of what's the word of personogenesis um that we can have that comes from interacting with other human beings especially caretakers where you sort of realize that they are bonding with you through their positive feedback in this case specifically the positive feedback of a smile and there's even a, a a case study in here that some kid when when he was seven got this kind of feedback from his mother um this some kid who 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 didn't know didn't notice smile he was smile blind and for them smiles are an important way in which you can get this positive feedback um but at some point he was drawing something and his mother laughed and he spontaneously uh, got cured of his autism from this laughter that his mother was giving him and and so so then th- then it moves on to elephant toddlers <laughs> and says that maybe we can apply this idea of of bonding with humans through this moment of of laughter and there might be this very serious implication that is if we do this to elephant toddlers we might turn them into persons well and specifically persons <laughs> who can speak who can talk yeah that, well that's the fear they would they would start developing language i don't know and and you know do we want our elephants talking to us i i mean it's not something i've thought about uh i'd have to go back to my babar books um it yeah i mean so i mean that's why this is a real pandora's box that we might be opening all of a sudden there is this species of talking elephant and that's right you know they're they're big they probably have a totally a completely justified grudge against us yeah as as evidenced by some of their behavior when they get mad at us for sure and if they can communicate with each other and be like hey these motherfuckers killed my mom um to to steal her tusks um i I mean if an elephant killed me i would totally be fine like i would think that's completely the elephant's right you, to do it in your <laughs> i would that exactly that is probably how i would want to die from, I... from an honor culture you're like well i am responsible for the acts of all human beings exactly um but so like i i feel like even with this with this summary we're not doing justice to the utter weirdness um of this like, so i honestly thought this might be a hoax um but it's uh, it's slightly too coherent to be a random word generator like those postmodern hoaxes yeah it, and it's also too weird to be a hoax in the james Lindsay, peter right right yeah because what's the political target here right it this i mean this does show so it's in a journal called progress in biophysics and molecular biology which my library gets because i was able to download it so it is a journal that exists it does show like the hoax thing the idea that gender studies is the only you know place you can get a hoax like this is this is way weirder than anything uh, absolutely conceptual penis oriented Um, so it starts off with this uh, sentence autism is a widespread scourge of humankind yeah because we've been vaccinating our kids that's That's just the price you pay. Yeah. Um, only in Sweden are the human rights of the affected individuals often preserved as far as jurisdiction and infrastructure are concerned, which 
hey, I didn't know. But I, <laughs> Do we not preserve the human rights of autistic individuals? I, apparently, I, we give them, we let them invent Facebook. Um, and then, and then it says that a causal therapy was proposed in 1975. And this is, this was my favorite actually. Um, so there are two citations for personal communications of people who supported it. Gregory Bateson and Nicholas Luhmann, who I don't know, supported it. Jürgen Habermas's only criticism concerned the fact that an illegally printed edition of his book had been quoted. His, his only uh, criticism of the causal therapy of the theory. Yeah. yeah. This theory of this causal therapy. <laughs> that was, <laughs> I, I like that. That, I mean, that this is how just unassailable the, the theory is, right. is that Jürgen no. Habermas is only criticism. Yeah. He probably just ignored the whole fucking thing. I was like, wait, why are you quoting that book? Um, no, Noam Chomsky showed interest in a long phone conversation, which, which I have to think is also a low bar. <laughs> oh and then God. Conrad Lorenz said he appreciated it, but it was too difficult for him to fully understand. That sounds right. like, uh, <laughs> I mean, assuming these things happened, this isn't just made up. This is right. like, or, or if it's like a piece of performance art, I don't know. But if it really um, happened, you could see an old Conrad Lorenz just being like, yeah, no, it's interesting. I don't think I fully understand it. But my fa- can I read my favorite sentence? Yeah. yeah. Or my favorite little passage. Uh, Thank you when, for asking. Whenever yes. bonding between adults gets favored by natural selection next time around, some pre-existing behavioral trait gets, quote, ritualized for the new purpose of bonding. Huxley, Julian Huxley, 1942. In this way, frequently, a mating gesture, mounting, gets usurped (laughs) for a new function. Every TV viewer knows this from baboons, for example. Even the females are mounting for this purpose. Every TV viewer knows this from knows knows that baboons get baboons mount for the purpose of um, of bonding bonding. Now, yeah. I'm a TV viewer. I feel like I might be a counterexample to this because I am a TV viewer and I don't know that that I didn't know. And I, I'm not sure I still do know that uh, females and males mount for the purpose of of bonding. <laughs> I, I, did, I don't I, st- I also still don't know. This is an epistemological uh, conundrum. I, I feel like I also still don't know. And I am also a TV viewer. Um, you know, I had a female dog who used to mount my leg. <laughs> yeah. Maybe this is this is what, what the authors are, are talking about. <laughs> I thought they were going to go for into dog human sex. There's definitely a lot of little hints that it's going to do it. There's a lot of talk about uh, there was love, <laughs> dog and human love. But um <laughs> Uh, there was definitely a lot of hinting around that I knew you'd, you'd enjoy. <laughs> I was like, "Come um, on, just get get to it!" Like, I want <laughs> want a money shot. You know what? They probably couldn't because of free speech. Uh, uh, free speech didn't allow them to. Yeah, um, the PC, yeah. like all the freaking college campus <laughs> liberals. <laughs> Here's another one of my favorites. So, so the the whole uh, mounting thing didn't. It didn't go anywhere mm-hmm. because all they said was, you know, that's just one example of, but we're talking about smiling. Um, and then all of a sudden they say, but now imagine what is going to happen when the pampered bonding offspring is mirror competent, which I assume means something like you, you recognize yourself in the mirror. 
uh, Sigmund Freud sp- spoke here of the dark continent of female sexuality, <laughs> having the playroom in mind. I don't think I know my Freud fairly well. I don't think this is what he meant at all. Turn the lights on, Freud. But also, this is like the loved bonding offspring. This, yeah, so it's like not totally clear how those two sentences are related to each other, right? Uh, not at all. This is where it sounds like. <laughs> and then, and then it goes back to the dog. I don't understand this sentence. Even in the dog, the joy of the adult will predictably sometimes cause a pup to renounce of a piece of food if the adult is too happily excited in the anticipation of getting it so one can predict this is a question for field studies i i i just i don't like i don't understand i can't parse that sentence i can't i mean i haven't looked into this journal but do you think this was just like is this like a straight pay to publish apparently one of the authors has worked at cern you know, like these apparently are real names. It's funny because so Neuroskeptic, I don't know if you saw it, but um, Neuroskeptic in 2015 wrote a blog post about it and 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 kind of broke it down, the argument to the best of his ability. And the author went into the comments and kind of responded to some of the comments. I did not see this. And it's funny, Neuroskeptic himself, he, he kind of was won over by the author, not the paper, but more just the the sincerity and heartwarmingness of the message. Um, and, and it's funny, like, you sort of start to think of this more in terms of some sort of artistic expression of something. It make, It definitely makes more sense as a kind of some sort of you know, new postmodern way of <laughs> understanding deep human truths through other means besides, you know, empirical science and rational argument. It's not a very reliable method then. Um, I don't know. Like, I've learned a lot from David Lynch movies, from, from meditating, uh, you know. This, you have to open your mind is, a little bit. Um, I'm definitely putting, I found the Neuroskeptic, the Discover blog post. I'm definitely putting a link to that in show notes. You know, progress in biophysics and molecular biology, though, you know, find a a good postmodern journal and publish it there. Why are you invading the the hallowed halls of science, the the purity of the uh, disinterested search for truth? I mean, it's it's so I'm I'm not convinced this is an entirely satire, though. I don't think it's satire at all. I think it's I I think it is a, you know, it's like continental philosophy. (laughs) But I'd say that in, you know, like email Tamler as (laughs) gmail.com. No, I mean, like I like continental philosophy. (laughs) You like this? I I like some of it. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. I see the guy's comment. And he says, like, well, no, like you're saying not all elephants. He's he's responding to somebody who says that that it, that it's a false assumption that all elephants are autistic. And he says, oh, you're just using a different definition of autism. It's, yeah, it's, it's not all <laughs> elephants are autistic, just the ones who are vaccinated. <laughs> <laughs> I, I take it the idea of autistic is just that they lack theory of mind which I don't think people believe anymore, but yeah. Yeah. That like, uh, yeah, there's, there's, I think, I think you're right. This comes from some, 
some view that humans are special. They're qualitatively different from all other animals in, in our cognitive abilities. And that's more like a continuum, probably the false assumption. But but still, I feel like I'm yes-anding this paper way too much. But also the, <laughs> the idea that once you, through some audio technique... Um, send comforting sounds to the elephant and you cure its autism that it will suddenly learn to speak. Right. That's a kind of a leap, it seems like, right? Right. But at least it's falsifiable. You know, because the claim here is is that if if we, you know, there's there's sub sub vocal for humans, right? Uh, communication apparently goes on with elephants. They're they're communicating to each other at a frequency that we can't hear. And so if we can just decode what it is to laugh Right. Because in the in the paper, they they say, well, look, it's usually smiles and it's usually a visual communication that causes the bonding. But but they give that example of the kid whose mother started laughing and they're like, oh, no, you can also have this this uh, oral oral uh, um, joy that's communicated through bonding. And so therefore we could do it with with elephants by by pumping this this sub vocal <laughs> joy and causing them to bond and all of a sudden unleashing their full humanity i like this by now suddenly operational proposal is sketched in the following and it's ethical motivation discussed one thing i appreciated is that they really do get into the ethics behind it yeah they're not just willy-nilly gonna do this they have to figure out whether it's acceptable whether it's permissible if only your your ai overlords had you know, stepped back to to question what it is that they were unleashing on humankind. Uh, oh yeah, but this guy is all over the comments. Yeah, was it wise on the part of CERN's thirty five hundred scientists to decide to non renew their outdated two thousand safety report before creating the highest localized energy density anywhere in the universe on Earth in their so called Big Bang experiment? Oh, he. Uh, that's the other thing that Neuroskeptic talked about is that he sued to have this super collider not go off because he was worried it would create a black hole and destroy the earth. Uh, yeah. But it was an unsuccessful yeah. suit. So <laughs> I guess that's what made him sensitive to the ethics. You know, there are two big dangers. Black holes, <laughs> ripping the fabric of space-time, and talking elephants. <laughs> we don't want to hear this. <laughs> These are existential threats. The effective altruist should... Uh... <laughs> well, um... Should we wrap this up there? And then um, we have a long discussion with Sam Harris uh, coming up. There, there will be no mounting uh, for bonding purposes in the discussion. Well, not visual. No visual mounting. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. All right. Uh, we'll be right back. <laughs>
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. At this time, we like to take a moment to thank all the people who support us and get in touch with us in all the different ways that you do. We really appreciate it. It is what keeps us going after 165 episodes. But it is through this contact with our listeners and through the support that that makes this otherwise really burdensome, kind of dreary, joyless enterprise all worthwhile. Hey, you you know, we're we're approaching 165 episodes. We're approaching our seven-year anniversary, yeah, I believe. That's right. Do you have the seven-year itch at all? I do. Mm-hmm. I'm starting to look at <laughs> starting to look at other podcasts. But, uh, <laughs> I knew it. Yeah, you. Speaking of that, you went on another podcast, right? That's right. I went on uh, a podcast called the Social Exchange Podcast. Shout out to uh, Zach Rhodes. So I'll put a link to that in show notes. We actually got in a good discussion about something that that I think we should talk about eventually. Um, he's a specialist in addiction, and I, I don't think we've covered no. that directly. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe maybe at some point. So yeah, check the show notes. So if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us verybadwizards at gmail.com. Tweet to us at Tamler at Peas at Very Bad Wizards. You can follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook. You can join the lively discussion at the subreddit, the Very Bad Wizards subreddit. You can rate us on iTunes. Leave a review. We love reading the reviews and it can help uh, us reach new audiences. Um, if you would like to support us in more tangible ways, hey, we need to pour one out for the Amazon. Uh, yeah, so a lot of you noticed that <laughs> that we no longer have an Amazon button. And, you know, I don't remember if we ever said it on the podcast, but a long time ago, Sam Harris got his privileges revoked. Yeah. Um, from Amazon. What we should celebrate a little bit is that we made it big enough that we, yeah. uh, just like Sam, got... got, got dang. Jeff Bezos himself got pissed off at us. Yeah, he was like, this is going to ruin Amazon. This is going to bring us down. <laughs> uh, because of you guys, I have to pay shitty wages and poor conditions for all my factory work. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, so you can no longer support us that way. You can still support us through PayPal and through our Patreon page, which we really appreciate. And now that sponsors seem to be allergic to us. Um, no, it's just that, you know, we've decided, like Sam, our upcoming guest, that we don't want sponsors. That's what it is. That's uh, right. Until they until they say <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can become a Patreon supporter. We love our Patreon members. Um, there are three different tiers of support. We are now looking into um, making another another one, maybe another two. We're thinking about it. We still haven't figured out exactly what we would want to do. Yeah, so you can go to our Patreon page, and we we love all of you. Thank you so much for being in contact, for supporting us, and now let's bring on Sam Harris. Uh, we're lucky today to, as promised, have Sam Harris back on the show. Sam, I don't think you need an introduction to most of our audience, but uh, for those who don't know, Sam is a prolific author. Uh, neuros- do you call yourself a neuroscientist, Sam? You know, I, I do with some ambivalence. I, mean, I, I, I answer to the name, but the, the reality is, is I, I consider myself 
much more of a philosopher of mind. I, I, I can imagine that raises some hackles over <laughs> Tamler's neck. <laughs> no, but, I don't uh, care. As far as I'm concerned, you could. I, I, I've I've managed to follow a path uh, that has. Uh, really every constituency objects to my self-identification <laughs> <laughs> i think i'm gonna have to change my uh my gender soon just to <laughs> this, just to this. confuse everybody yeah the men have gotten together and we're not pleased with some of your recent statements so right yeah <laughs> uh but it, yeah i mean so my, my phd obviously is in neuroscience but i always went into neuroscience with philosophical interests and i, I never imagined i would be Running a lab, doing you know research on on uh, you know disease or fruit flies or or, or anything that right. was not you know higher cognition, and I, I really I I did it because I wanted to write and think and speak uh, about the mind and about about you know propositional attitudes and and moral reasoning and but you know I, I don't have a PhD in philosophy, so many philosophers and philosopher grad students. Um, you know, are concerned about that. So, in any case, it's uh, I have no home. This is no home. well. If you can't call yourself a neuroscientist by dint of having a PhD in neuroscience, I don't know. I don't know what would possibly qualify you. But I was going to say that is the longest, most circuitous route to being an author that I can imagine is getting yeah. a PhD. Did you find that it opened doors actually? Yeah. Well. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Definitely. I. I was. Uh, if you're writing nonfiction. You, people care how you know or how you think you know what you're writing about. And I, I had started writing earlier because I thought I was going to write fiction, right? I, I dropped out of uh, oh, my undergraduate degree uh, thinking I was going to write novels. And there it really doesn't matter, you know, whether you have a degree. It's, it's just the quality of your, your prose. So I, w I was surprised to discover that I was no longer inclined to write fiction. And I then. I had kind of orphaned myself uh, by dropping out of school, and so I had to go back in order to, you know, whether whether it was actually going to help my writing, I had to go back to just have the right biography to to get in the door. But I mean, the, the truth is, it was absolutely necessary intellectually. I was, you know, the stuff I was writing before I went back to school, you know, shouldn't have been published. You know, not not that I tried to get it published, but right. it was, um, you know, I, I had. Uh, I had a lot of a lot to learn. Right. Well, with that very long uh, uh, rambly yeah. introduction, I, I don't say that Sam was rambling there. <laughs> no, no. I, do you, I do you always insult your guests? I, yeah. is, that, is that what the, that has become we on usually, this podcast? We usually insult you when you're not here. Um, I, 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 I've, I was, I've noticed. I, I was maligning my, my own my own follow up questions to an introduction because I, what I was tasked to say is that today we have Sam on and primarily our goal is to talk about uh meditation and the self stuff that we talked a, a bit about uh, when we appeared on your podcast sam but that we have um had a growing interest in over the past few months but i think we have a lot of asides to get through clearly we seem to have gotten yeah. through some already, already. Yeah. <laughs> is the podcast over can i, can <laughs> yes. I leave now? Uh, yeah uh, thank you for coming on sam we've been meaning to have you on for a while but I'm about to do a panel in Sofia, Bulgaria on ego dissolution, psychedelics, the self, oh, wow. and meditation. And I thought there's no better person to talk to about those things than you. So we have both been using your app 
I'm on day 35. You had given us generously free versions of it soon after it was released. And because I've been meditating for a long time, for a number of years now, and because I tend to meditate for longer daily than just 10 minutes, which is the average length of yours, I had been sort of hesitant to dive into it. But I found, especially now that I'm getting more interested in the philosophy behind this meditation, that it's been really useful in terms of how it ex explores what it is that we're doing when we meditate, the phenomenology of it, the philosophy behind it. And I've been, yeah, I've been really happy. It's, uh, it's opened some, some doors. Oh, cool. Just to give my, uh, a little bit of background for me, because I was the opposite of Tamla. I've, I've meditated a handful on a handful of occasions, uh, mostly just to see what it was like. And in most cases to treat insomnia. <laughs> um, so I was actually didn't do it for a while because I, I it was like, OK, this is just a thing that I'm going to have to like to pick up like a brand new thing. And it's it's daunting. And I just wasn't sure what to expect. And I started doing it um, uh, when we invited you to come on. And you and I'm not going to say this lightly, because honestly, I was a little worried that hearing your voice, Sam, uh, every day was just going to remind me of recording. And right. I, I wasn't sure. It's going to annoy the hell out of you. <laughs> yeah. Well, not annoy, but you know, it was going to, it sometimes feels like, like you couldn't pay me to listen to Tamla's voice every day. And I have found not only how you say things, but what you say to be surprisingly helpful and lucid. And, and, you know, I'm on day, I've skipped days. It's taking me a while to pick up the habit, but boy, there are some days where it has really made a difference. And uh, I was just telling Tamler yesterday that I've had a stressful couple of weeks to the end of the term. And there are moments where just because I've listened to to uh, your app, I've remembered to just take a moment, you know, like even in the car or, you know, sitting in my office chair and and take a step back and, and do use some of the techniques that that uh, you talk about. And look, I don't know. I don't know from Adam, like I don't know other apps, how they work, but but I found this to be uh, pretty damn good. So, so I appreciate it. Nice. Nice. Pretty damn good. I'll take that blurb. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. let's start at a basic level. What do you take the primary goal of meditation to be the primary goal or several primary goals? Mm, yeah, well, there, there are at least two. I mean, one is certainly more important than the other, but there, there are two things one could emphasize here. One is just not suffering unnecessarily, right? So just maximizing your, your well-being insofar as that's uh, within your reach to do. Uh, I think meditation is a, not the only tool, certainly, but, but a, a primary tool with which to do that. So that's, that's a, a kind of Buddhist framing uh, of the whole project. I mean, you know, the Buddha spoke about suffering and the end of suffering. And, you know, that's where, that's how most people come into it. Most people notice that their experience isn't what they might hope, uh, certainly in most moments. And they're wondering whether or not it's possible to, to uh, live a more fulfilling life. And, uh, you know, this becomes something that people notice even when they, they seem to have all the requisites for happiness in place. You know, their, their career is as they want it. Their family is as they want it. They, you know, they're, they're currently healthy. You know, nothing uh, 
overt is is especially wrong in their lives, and that yet they notice that they're not uh, they they don't have access to the range of positive mental states that they they would expect, and or or that those states are are uh, incredibly fleeting, and that they suffer you know a level of anxiety or you know, shame or self-doubt or I mean, just a, a range of negative emotions that just can't be kept at bay even when life seems to be going well. And so, so meditation is really helpful there for reasons we can talk about. But the other reason to do it is just intellectual interest, just curiosity about what the mind is like and what, what can be noticed about it from the first person side and and, and I, I emphasize those those two projects by turns but they're definitely different and the you know not everyone cares about the second one and uh, but I, you know I can you know I can sound like I, I only care about the second one for some period of time depending on on uh, where you catch me it's funny because I also come at it more from this the second perspective and one of the issues I've had with the with the Buddhist emphasis on suffering is I, I it doesn't feel to me like I'm suffering. It definitely feels to me like I am leaving some good experiences on the table that yeah, I could the... be appreciating the world more. But the idea that I'm suffering and that because I, I've come at this as a fairly happy person, not too angry, yeah. not too anxious, not too stressed. And so, yeah, it's funny that that is the, the number one Buddhist principle is that all of life is suffering. Uh, OK, so I have well, to I have to jump in here and say that this I, this is funny. It's funny to me because um, uh, I have the exact opposite intuition as as Tamler and the, the suffering is so clearly why I would go into it. And I think mm -hmm. this gets this is at the heart of our different intuitions about antinatalism, Tamler. Um, uh, because oh, did, did you by the way on that point did you ever talk to that guy uh was it david benatar yeah so no did you that, did you have him on yeah i did How? I, I did i i, I did an anti-natalism podcast you know maybe a year ago or maybe that was two years ago i don't know when how, how did that go um it was interesting i i, I like the conversation I, I didn't think his arguments in the end there, there were there were some obvious uh, missteps, at least they were, they seemed obvious to me that he was making and not acknowledging. So the the, the debate kind of broke down in a few places. I was not persuaded by his um, his philosophy. Let's let's we can leave it there. But it, it's it's fascinating to to. I mean, there are people for whom their their psychology seems to be. Uh, rigging their philosophy in a way that is not acknowledged. I mean, this is obviously a kind of an ad hominem argument that you, you know, one should make sparingly. But I, I, occasionally, in the position, w w whenever I'm talking to someone who claims to be a nihilist or, you know, claims to have, you know, philosophically reasoned himself into a position to to wonder whether or not he should commit suicide, um, what what seems to me to be happening is that you have a mood disorder masquerading as a series of philosophical insights mm. and, you know so if, like if someone just felt better in that moment they wouldn't be finding certain ideas captivating and i can't really i can't say that directly about benatar but he really he did not want to talk about himself at all to a degree that would that that struck me as uh, that struck me as as 
fairly bizarre. I mean, he just he just couldn't let the conversation go in that direction at all. And it was just to anything personal. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it was I mean, obviously he's got a you know, he has his own security concerns. People kind of go crazy when they hear his thesis. And I think he's gotten death threats and all that. But, you know, I wasn't talking about, you know, where do you live and and how can we find you? It was it was more like just what is your personal experience and how might that be be relating to to you finding this view so interesting but they and they say that you know philosophy is doesn't doesn't really touch the real world i mean if i could get a death threat for any philosophical position that i espoused i'd consider it a victory because somebody was paying attention correct yeah yeah we're we're in the market for death threats so yeah so (laughs) dave and i have come at this from two different perspectives which one of those made meditation an appealing route to explore well, it, it was really both, but I, I should clear one thing up because there, there's a common misunderstanding around the term suffering that um, I hope I clear up someplace in my app. I'm 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 not sure. I mean, as you know, the app is not. I'm not. A, I don't consider myself a Buddhist, and the, my framing of meditation isn't explicitly Buddhist. But nor do I hide the fact that I, that if there's any one tradition that I think has most of the right answers here, it's it's various. Uh, strands of Buddhism. So I certainly give props to Buddhism, but I, I don't uh, push it as a as a religion anyone should subscribe to. Uh, but th- there is a, there's confusion around this notion of, of suffering uh, in Buddhism because the, the, the Pali term is dukkha, which is, is often translated as suffering, but it, it, the, the, the real meaning, or the closer meaning is is unsatisfactoriness, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And and so so life is life is unsatisfactory. So sensory experience is unsatisfactory, if for no other reason than it's impermanent, right? So conditions right. come together. You have this extremely pleasurable experience. You have this extremely satisfying change in your life, and then every one of those peak experiences has a half life and becomes a memory. And then you're thinking about this thing that happened in the past. In many cases, you're thinking about how you can acquire that experience again or, or something like it. And you're you're still on this treadmill of seeking to become happy, seeking to be uh, gratified by a change in the contents of consciousness. And that effort, that whole effort to continually... Uh, uh, become to change yeah. experience. That is what he he the Buddha now the Buddha uh, considered uh, in in principle unsatisfactory. And so that and and meditation is prescribed as a as a technique for one understanding all the mechanics of that uh, more and more viscerally, not necessarily conceptually, and uh, achieving. A, a kind of state of equanimity with the, the changes in experience, so that you're not holding on to what's pleasant and and disappearing, you're not uh, resisting what's unpleasant and inevitably appearing, and you're discovering more and more that that consciousness has a a um, an intrinsic character of of freedom and you know as we'll talk about selflessness that is uh, on some level unperturbed by its contents and by changes and that's so as a remedy for unhappiness it's 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 working at as a you know it's pro, it's promised to be a a 
a doorway into a fundamental insight about the nature of consciousness that can get you to no longer seek to be happy uh, in some future moment, uh, you know, or to or to or to seek that much or less and less. And every moment you can you can remember what consciousness is actually like, and to just just come to rest, you know, uh, in the present. It, it's not that the Buddha did failed to acknowledge that there was a hierarchy of conventional states of happiness that are are uh, that that are good you know in a conventional way and and it's not that all life is 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 suffering in the usual sense he's he, there's i think there's a there's a there's a sutta in the Pali canon called the mahamangala the, the mahamangala sutta which is you know the the sutta on, on great happiness he he basically sketches a kind of ladder of of increasing states of happiness, you know, like you know, having a healthy body is is a form of happiness. Having you know a family that is that is uh, yeah, healthy and and uh, unthreatened by outer circumstances is a, is, a, is a form of happiness. And and so, in terms of our preferences in life, he he certainly conceded that you know it's better to be healthy and surrounded by people who love you uh, than than to be you know terrorized by enemies and. Um, and and so that's you know he, he the sense that people often take from the notion that that life is suffering is that uh, he, Buddhism is a kind of nihilistic philosophy that that negates every conventional form of happiness, which is not true. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense. And this idea of life being unsatisfying, or that happiness or good experience seems right around the corner, and to recognize the What's good about the present moment is something that I still feel like I'm nowhere near good enough at doing. And that is something that does deeply resonate with me. And it's it'll be interesting as we explore its connections with the self, how those two things are related. Yeah, there's a... Um there's a way in which if we took misery to mean that misunderstanding, Sam, that you were describing, I don't qualify really for being miserable. Um, I, I have a good life compared to 99.9% of all humans who have existed. And not only that, I actually am what, you know, psychologists might call high and positive affect. So I am generally uh, experiencing good things in life. It's that low-level signal that um, it, part of it, that word resistance that you used is really captures, um, I think, a lot of the feeling that I'm trying really hard to let go. Like I said, I'm, you know, day 12 or 13, mm. and that's what I'm struggling against the most. There is this low-lying, misery maybe isn't the right word, but it's a source of unease in life that I can't yeah. shake no matter, even if I'm smiling and happy and jokey. So it doesn't really like, it's not fair to say I'm suffering in any, in any way that we might use that colloquially, but there is this, this existential unease that, that is always at the bottom of all my experiences because they're going to end and there's yeah. something, something happening yeah. bad in the future, like death, like that stupid app that Tamler just bought that reminds you you're going to die five times a day. Uh, uh, oh, we croak. We croak. Yeah. 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 yeah that's it hilarious. is Dave's worst nightmare. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, well no, I am my it, own app. I, I do that to myself 10 times a day. If you're at all self-aware or if you're uh, or if you're Jewish, uh, <laughs> you, you do notice that even in the midst of everything good happening, 
that life is fragile, right? Yeah, and, right. And every such every circumstance is, is deeply fragile. And, you know, I, I know people who are especially high in, in positive affect who seem never to think about that, right? So it's right. like, these are people who are like, you know, the opposite of, you know, Woody Allen, right? Right. They're like the Labradors of human beings. Like right. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, so I know I have a few friends who are like this, who just don't, I mean, it's like they, they're, they're not going to think about death until someone close to them dies right. or they're in the hospital. Right. 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 Um, and literally they, they don't spend one minute of any day thinking about death. And, you know, I'm not like that. And contemplatives in any tradition uh, admonish people not to be like that because it's really, it's, it's death that, that gives a kind of urgency to an examined life. Um, but, you know, it, depending on who you are, it can, it can really seem like, you know, just pure upside to be that sort of person because, right. you know, you're, you're, you're going to die when you're going to die. You're not going to, you're not going to stave off death by worrying about it. I mean, the, the, the utility of worry is something that's mm-hmm. worth considering because in, in most cases it's, it's, um, it serves no purpose. I mean, you basically suffer twice. Uh, but if it can help you get your priorities straight uh, to think about death, which I, I think it can, it, it's worth it's worth doing. But as you as you say, the 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 seed of uh, the dissolution of of all your happiness is apparent in in almost any moment that you think about. It. I mean, in the moment you see your child. You know, uh, you know, joyfully celebrating mm-hmm. uh, is a moment where you can reflect on the fact that you know n- not only will the, the child, not only is the child's life uh, uh, vulnerable to any crazy thing that can happen, and that you, as a parent, you know, wor- you worry about this rather a lot. Uh, there's just a, a bittersweetness to the fact that they're changing every day and, and disappearing as children. It's like, totally. I, I notice that, that I'm relating to my daughters as though they're always going to be this age. Right. And, you know, it's like, a, you know, I'm just sort of used to the fact that I've got somebody who's, you know, three feet tall in the house and, and talks and thinks like a five-year-old and that's who she is. And then all of a sudden something will change. Like I'll just, she'll just grow Either cognitively or emotionally or linguistically or just physically by by one increment that I notice, and I realize, oh fuck, you know this mm-hmm. is like that person yesterday who you know mispronounced the word animal yep. will never mispronounce animal again, <laughs> right? And yeah. and it's just, it was so cute and now it's gone and that's fucking awful. <laughs> I I actually I'm one of those people who don't I I know I'm going to die intellectually, but I don't it doesn't bother me or I don't worry about it. What does bother me is that my daughter is going to go to college in three, years, <laughs> three and a half years. And that's just and it's not even that I worry about her safety or somebody harming her as much as just I so enjoy having her as a daily feature of my life. And that's that thing. I mean, the, the worst thing you can do is worry about that for the next three and a half years and fail to appreciate yeah. the time that you have. But I think that is uh, that 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 is one of the, the the scariest things about getting older for me is not dying, but just watching the changes in the people around me and what's happening and how that affects our relationship and how that affects 
I, 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 this idea of resistance that Dave brought up and you brought up is really interesting to me. If I could nail down one of the best things that meditation has done is it's identified resistance as a source, uh, not, not the thing that you're resisting as the source of suffering, but the resistance as the source of suffering. Yeah. Yeah, and when absolutely. you recognize that, it is a hugely powerful technique for anything from like aches or pains to just thoughts or fears or it's not the thing itself that's so bad it's how you just instinctively react against it and steel yourself against it or worry about it that often is causing you the greatest unease and when you let that go and you just recognize the thing itself it's like it 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 it, it just relaxes you yeah well also there's there's a uh, another technique here, which uh, I'm sure David knows a lot about from psychology, but it's just it's it's a framing effect that is so powerful here, you know, or or, yeah. or a cognitive reappraisal. So that, I mean, the same sensation. I mean, to, to take physical discomfort as a as sort of the coarsest uh, case, you know, there there are all kinds of pains and 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 physical stresses that, if felt under one circumstance would signal a, a kind of medical emergency that would you know provoke mm. terror or or something like terror uh, but the exact same uh, catalog of sensations in another context could actually make you happy i mean so i could just ask people to imagine what it would be like to wake up in the middle of the night feeling physical sensations that were identical to those you felt during your last hardest and most gratifying workout Right. So just imagine what it feels like to. I didn't think you were going yeah. with workout there, but I'm yeah, glad right. you did. <laughs> okay, yeah. right, right. But like go, go to go. Just think, you know, if you lift weights. Right. So just, you know, or, or you know, whatever it is, if you're if you, you know, sprint, you know, for intervals or you, 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 you just jog. I mean, just imagine getting your heart rate up to something near its maximum, putting stress everywhere and uh, yet doing it. It's, it's exactly what you want to do in that moment. And after you've done it. You, you're not traumatized by the experience. It's exactly what you had hoped. And you expect. It's just, it's all, it's all a, a win. And yet, if, w without that frame, or given some other frame, uh, you know, it, it, would, it, it could constitute torture, right? Yeah. And so it's, it, the power of concepts here is, is uh, fairly impressive. And, and I would just add that this is distinct. I mean, I, I talk about this in, in the app, and, and it's, it's certainly useful to bring this into a a kind of uh, meditation practice, but but this kind of cognitive reappraisal and the, and the power of it is distinct from mindfulness or or, or meditation as I'm describing it. It's not. It's a, it's another tool, and in in some ways, it's it's in certain ways, it, it's it's more powerful than mindfulness. I mean, it's it's. I mean, the, the difference is take a a fear that many people have, many of us have had. I certainly had it, the fear of public speaking. Um, there's sort of three ways, you, three levels at which you could address this problem, you know, leaving pharmacology aside. I mean, one is just to be mindful of the anxiety whenever it arises. And you really can do that. And you, and you, if you're being sufficiently mindful, you know, less anxiety will arise, but it, it'll still tend to arise in every moment that you're not mindful. So every moment that you're lost in thought and thinking about, oh, oh my God, I got to give that speech tomorrow, uh, anxiety will arise again. You'll still have the physiology of it, 
and then you then you can be mindful of it and and as you say Tamler will notice that your suffering in that moment is not based on the on the physiological response it's based on your resistance to it mm-hmm. and your interpretation of it and your further perseveration about you know what it means for you to be such a schmuck who's afraid to talk to uh, the class or whatever and how did you become this person other people are able to do it and why can't you do it and and so you're you're thinking every moment of the day and once you learn how to be mindful you can interrupt that and those interruptions provide moments of real relief from the suffering component and you, and your relief in those moments is not predicated on the the anxiety going away because the the anxiety has a half life you know it can't go away instantly it'll take 30 seconds or so to dissipate and yet if if your mindfulness is strong you can notice that you're free of it even while it's there as a matter of of suffering so that's that's fine and yet you're if if, if that's your only tool with which to address this problem of of stage fright you will You'll continue. You'll, you'll certainly continue to have this experience of being anxious about speaking and then being mindful of anxiety. Yeah. Uh, but if you can reframe things the way we just described, if if one you can just it's, it's helpful to reframe the anxiety itself as an emotion, which is fairly similar to a, a classically positive emotion like excitement right so if you can notice that anxiety and excitement are, are fairly similar and you're just you're just tag you're tagging one as highly negative and the other as as you know something you'd pay to feel before you get on a roller coaster um, then you can become you, you can begin begin to to reduce its power over you and that's a, that's a conceptual remedy but there's a third piece which is you should you could also just have more experience speaking in public and begin to feel good about it and to actually, you know, feel rewarded by it and then like to do it. And then that becomes a, 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 a far more basic antidote to this whole uh, complex of, of associations around, around doing that thing. And then you can really be someone who just doesn't feel anxious at all. So it's, and it's not, it's not that mindfulness got you there. Uh, and I would, I would say that mind, there's probably no amount of mindfulness that represents an intelligent uh, response, a self-sufficient response to this problem in the absence of also just doing the thing that you're anxious about doing. You got, you have to do that. Otherwise, you're always just going to be thinking and then being mindful of the consequences of thinking. So uh, anyway. So I was going to, in that, in that context of emotional regulation, which is something that, that uh, I find fascinating, that, that I honestly take as the primary instrumental goal of of meditating the distinction helps helps me because it is easy to think of mindfulness or whatever that focus that you're getting during meditation as a panacea and psychologists often distinguish between emotion regulation terms between regulation that happens after you're starting to experience an emotion uh, versus Mm -hmm. the things that you do to not experience it just like you said right and those those latter ones the things that you do to not experience the anxiety are always going to be way, way more effective. Um, and I find that, and maybe you can help me with this, Tamler, I don't know if you have this experience as well, but I find that sometimes when I'm trying to consciously downregulate some anxiety that I'm having, or even trying to use something like, like mindfulness, I feel like I'm engaging in self-deception. Like if I say, well, I don't need to worry about that. i I think to myself, no, but I do. I, if I don't worry about it, then I'm not going to get it done. 
And I can't, I can lie to myself mm. and say this isn't important that I shouldn't feel anxious about it. But I, I kind of think I should feel anxious about it. The think deadline was a month ago. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like I'm getting a bunch of yeah. emails. Like I can be as mindful as I want. <laughs> Valentine's Day was the 14th. And now it's March. Uh, well, so one, one other piece to clear up here is that um, there's a bit of a paradox here, which is that you can't be mindful of a negative emotion so that it will go away. Right. And, and people try to do that. They're, they're subtly trying to push away this negative mental state that they have aversion to, uh, i.e. resistance to. And they think they're, they're using mindfulness as the, the antidote. And that's not actually mindfulness. I mean, that's just a, it's a way of you can be you can be hyper vigilant. You can be paying attention to your your emotional state. But you're if you're if you're paying attention so that your experience will change in the next moment. You're you're playing the same game of of trying to manipulate things. You're always playing, and you are not actually being you know technically mindful. And and so mindfulness really there's no way around it. Mindfulness entails in that moment a a real acceptance of the contents of consciousness in that moment. You just have to be truly indifferent to the feeling of anxiety uh, and then then it dis then then you're in that moment are no longer captured by thought you're no longer giving it energy and then it does dissipate very very quickly well so what about rumination because i find that that's the only way that i you know some there's research showing that men especially for instance are prone to ruminating about angry thoughts and women more about sad thoughts but um but the the content of those thoughts seems intrusive um and oh yeah and you're yeah. you're uh, it's like you're experiencing the emotion anew every time that thought pops into your head. Yeah, that, well, that's what I'm saying. R rumination is the problem. I mean, otherwise right. known as thinking. Right. You know, it's it's your if your if your thinking captures you. Uh, I mean, the the, the the spell that has to be broken in, in each moment of mindfulness is the identification with thought. I wonder if there's a step in how mindfulness accomplishes the dissipation of the emotion. And I certainly feel this way for me when I'm successful, which is definitely the minority of the time. But it involves the act of being mindful just relaxes my body and it relaxes. And when my body is relaxed, that affects my emotion and I can start to put things better in proper perspective. And had I not had the mindfulness of what's going on, my bot that wouldn't the body wouldn't have reacted in that way. And so the dissipation doesn't happen. If it's not a necessary condition, it's almost a necessary condition. My bot I'm a tense bodily person. And right. when my body relaxes, my mind relaxes more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well that that's a component to feeling better certainly and and mindfulness can can help initiate that uh, but the the crucial thing about mindfulness itself is that the the freedom from suffering that it allows isn't predicated on anything changing right so like once mindfulness gets very strong you can notice that consciousness is intrinsically free of its contents in a way that can be recognized even in the midst of classically unpleasant contents. 
right? So like you can, you can make your body as tense as you want. You can be as uptight as you want. You could have been as filled with rage as you've ever been a moment ago. And if, if you actually have a strong mindfulness practice, if I said, okay, well, what about being mindful right now, right? If, to, if in that mo, if in that next moment you become mindful of that whole constellation of, of sensations, uh, you know, you, you still feel the, the physiology of rage, you still, your body's still tight, you're still in the situation, uh, you can recognize in that moment, and perhaps only for a moment, right, depending on how much, you know, concentration you have, that consciousness is already free of this apparent problem. You know, there's, there's a kind of like waking up from a dream component to mindfulness. All phenomenology is equalized and it's um everything we could conceivably experience and, and and everything we do in fact experience in this moment is an expression of consciousness it's made of consciousness again this is not a metaphysical statement about the universe i'm not saying that the, you know this doesn't have something to do with the brain but at, at the level of uh, our subjectivity at the level of, of of experience all there is is consciousness and its contents and that can be when when mindfulness really recognizes that, it um, there's a freedom from implication and from and from self, which I mean, we, which we haven't talked about yet, which isn't predicated on anything changing. I understand that as a as a I was just talking about as a helpful technique, and maybe this is personally it reminded me of some Damasio stuff about the body sometimes being prior to the emotion rather than a result of the emotion as we sometimes think of it. And that resonates with me um, on this issue. Yeah. Let, let's, uh, let's go into the, to the weeds about meditation and the self. So I, I've done a lot of guided meditations. I, the 10% Happier app was the one that I used before I started using yours this last. Yeah, that's great. And that's a good one, too. And one thing you do that they don't do as much is, I don't know, the way I was thinking of it is it's a kind of radical empiricism where when we're meditating, you instruct the the, the, the listeners to really just not go by their concepts, but go by what they're actually feeling and experiencing. So the example that something clicked for me, I'm not sure what, is when you talk about the hands and the feeling of the hands, and I often that's often an object of concentration for me. What you said roughly is that you're, what you, do, you don't feel a hand right now, that, that there's a whole hand there. You feel a tingling in an area that you kind of infer to be your hand or a coldness or a vibration, but you don't feel a hand. And then you also talk about the body as kind of a cloud of sensation when you're sitting with your eyes closed. That's how it actually, and, and what you seem to be pressing throughout the, the, the sessions is this idea of really just focusing on the direct experience rather than the normal thing that we take to be the body. Um, and I'm wondering what, what, why, what's this? There does seem something deeply true about it, but why are you coming at it that way in a way that some other guided meditations aren't? 
Yeah, well, this is something that Joseph certainly does uh, in general. I mean, this is just straight Vipassana practice, which is which is the source of of mindfulness as, as most people practice it. Um, and it really is just it is a uh, just a truth, you know, empirically uh, again uh, from the first person side that if you pay close enough attention to the the experience of having a hand. Um, and leave leave vision aside because this is this is not as clear visually. But if you just if your if your eyes are closed as many people as they are for many people when they meditate, and you just feel your body you know, or any part of your body, you you can notice the distinction between the idea you have of its shape based on on vision and the actual sensations uh, that uh, are being delivered. From that part of your body, and the sensations are these changing and fleeting percepts, which are you know tingling and and pressure and pain and itching and uh, temperature and 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 it's uh, but none of that is shaped like a hand, and and when it and the feeling that it is is a is a coarser grained con- conceptually framed. Uh, mode of not really paying very close attention. And what you're trying to do in mindfulness, certainly in the beginning, uh, is uh, pay close enough attention to experience so that you're building uh, the requisite concentration to to uh, be mindful in the first place, right? It's just, it's hard to, it, it, you, the experience is one of of being more or less perpetually lost in thought or or buffeted around by thought, even in those moments when you're when you're able to to pay attention, and the antidote to that is concentration. So there is a, a level of concentration that everyone's whether they talk about it or not, that everyone's tr- trying to achieve by linking uh, consecutive moments of mindfulness together. And one, you know, the signature of that is to notice that you know when you're paying attention to the body. You're noticing fleeting sensations that you can you can be connecting with more or less clearly at the level of attention, uh, and noticing their impermanence. And that is, and noticing impermanence does become a a again. This is not really thought through. It, it kind of this is just something that arrives as a kind of firmware update of your of your mind, but it, it becomes an antidote to the kind of resistance and clinging to experience we were talking about earlier. So. At, when you're really noticing the fleeting character of phenomenon on a deep level, you begin to feel like it's impossible to cling to pleasant experience and to and it, it's it's completely pointless to push away unpleasant experience every there's like, there's just nothing solid there uh in each moment and and so the, and 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 when you arrive at that place, the mind becomes more and more equanimous um and that's a you know so and and so that's part of the the path but so that yeah that's the link i'm not totally getting so number 1 that you just focus on the raw sensations as much as you can and try to make it as continuous as you can then you also notice if you're doing that that certain sensations come and they go and and that they're impermanent what's the connection between that and avoiding the kind of resistance or clinging that that we're, that we're trying to avoid. Well, traditionally, and again, this is this is not something I emphasize very much in my approach. I mean, to to, to distinguish my approach from 
what Joseph tends to teach is that in in Joseph's school of Buddhism, and, and Joseph is is very much a Buddhist teacher who's teaching you know classic Burmese vipassana. In his approach, it's to notice the with deeper and deeper clarity what are called the three characteristics of all phenomenon, and uh, those are we've, we've we've spoken about all three to some degree already in this conversation, and that the Pali terms are anicca, dukkha, and anatta. Uh, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and selflessness, uh, and so, uh, and the, and you can your practice can emphasize each of these by turns, uh, and each has the uh, the effect of disengage. One, in order to notice any of those things clearly, you have to be not lost in thought. Right? You're not. It's not. A, it's not a matter of thinking about these things incessantly. It's a matter of of actually noticing that all the contents of consciousness are impermanent, unsatisfactory by virtue of, of impermanence, and selfless also by virtue of impermanence. There's no unchanging permanent self carried from one right. carried through from one moment to the next. And so uh, uh, impermanence really is the, the kind of foundational insight in this style of practice where you're, you're you're noticing that nothing lasts for more than a second. I mean, the, the more closely you pay attention to it, the more you're in touch with almost like the atoms of experience, and they're they're constantly, you know, winking in and out of existence. Um, and so the possibility of holding on to anything uh, just begins to recede, and uh, and then a, a, a greater in, in in the general case. I mean, although there, there are some detours here which can be somewhat unpleasant, the general general case is deeper and deeper equanimity and well-being with all of that as you as you begin to uh, notice this more and more, uh, and then and your and the the impossibility of suffering over the the kinds of things you have tended to suffer over. The difference in my approach, and this is something that I got from. Zogchen practice and from Advaita Vedanta and, and you know, my experiences in, in just other schools of, of meditation is that uh, you can notice selflessness directly, right? And, and, and it's selflessness that's not dependent on noticing impermanence first, right? It's not, it's not a matter of everything's changing so fast that there could, there, there's no place for the, for the concept of self to attach. It's no, you can actually notice that there's no center to experience uh, in each moment uh, without noticing any particular uh, impermanence and without actually even having a very fine-grained level of concentration on phenomenon. So like to go back to your original question, you could notice that even while having the concept of a hand in place. The focusing on the sensation and that of the focus on observing your thoughts, <clears throat> I take what, what I feel, and tell me if this is close to, to, to the thinking behind this, but one of the things I feel is that I am being dislodged, like my myself is being dislodged. So when, when Tamler describes that feeling of his hands, um, really isn't the same as what you would think uh, uh, about your feeling of your hands, or when... You know, one of the things I noticed, I don't know if you guys have similar experiences, but I noticed at times when I would meditate under a lot of anxiety, I noticed exactly where my anxiety is in my body. It's like mm, somewhere yeah. in my core. 
And there was one time where I was just deeply sad about something. And I was I was meditating and I realized the sadness is a completely different place. Like it felt like at the base of my of my head somewhere. And I was like, oh, that's so weird. Um, but in noticing those things, I feel like what what's happening is I am <clears throat> all of the things that I consider part of who I am in my identity, which includes the physical sensations that that I, I add up together holistically to, to make me feel like myself, my presence in space. But also, really importantly, my thoughts that link together, thus giving me a sense of permanence. I think that deeply the sense of me being a continuous individual over time comes from the fact that there's there's overlap in my thoughts. Um, that dis the practice is trying really hard to dislodge me. It's as if I can't I can't shake the language of dualism so forgive me but there's a there's a way in which just purely metaphorically not metaphysically um it feels as if somebody is coming in and kicking my kicking my soul out out of my my body soul and body aren't the right words there but it is it is taking me out of all of the things that I would normally associate with who I am deeply and I this is what I'm in the midst of the process of resisting Right. Every time I go onto your app, um, I get caught up in identifying again with my bodily sensations and identifying with my thoughts and, and finding it hard to think that this, well, this is just me. What are you dislodging here, Sam? Right. Um, right. I'll say this one thing before I forget that I think, Tamler, what you brought up about Sam's, for lack of a better term, empiricist approach yeah. is a- absolutely critical, I think, for my ability to follow you, Sam, because... I think that I find a lot of resistance the minute the minute I've noticed this in myself and this is judgmental and I don't like it. But the minute that there is some idea um, included in there that is not that, that's something I'm going to argue against. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it loses me. It completely loses me. So it's deeply important, I think, for you to focus only on the aspects of consciousness that are immediately observable to, I think, anybody. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's given my background, given all the time I've spent criticizing religion and you know, <laughs> yeah. what I consider to be unfounded belief, you know, it's it's natural for me to teach this in a way that that um, doesn't rely on faith in any normal sense. And I mean, the, the only faith you need to get this process started and, and to keep it going is the faith that uh, is the faith of a kind of scientific hypothesis that you know if I run this experiment on myself, something interesting might happen. And you're being told from you know, somebody like me, in this case, that you know something interesting does happen. And here are the sort of landmarks you could expect. But you know here here's how you test it. You don't don't believe me. Just just test it. Uh, just test this claim. And um, there's nothing to believe. Uh, uh, apart from that, just right. you just, that, just, that it'll just work. Do, the hope do that the it'll experiment. work in whatever way uh, it will work. Right. Uh, I mean, that, that said, my approach here is more intrusive and philosophical uh, than is normal. I mean, what, what's no, what's normal in a meditation app, and this is the, this is the normal approach of, of teaching vipassana, you know, for a very long time to people. Uh, it's just you you give the technique, you give the practice, you you, you teach people how to be mindful. And you give them very little expectation uh, around what uh, what constitutes success here and what might happen or should happen if they're actually able to follow 
the experiment right. through. And and so what you so people just they, they just do their practice without any real expectation and um that's fine for a time, but it's a little bit like opening a gym and giving people all the the equipment to work out. You know, so there are dumbbells and there's a pull-up bar and there's, you know, all these different weight stations. And you teach them how to use it all safely and, and rationally. And they do that. Um, and so that's one sort of gym. But imagine a gym where you did all of that, but there were also posters on the wall of, you know, whoever, Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime, where you could you could immediately understand that, okay, that this is actually going in a direction that is fairly uh, uh, unusual and and esoteric and 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 hard won and it's you know if my biceps don't look like that um, you know barring you know genetic anomalies you know it's because I'm not making precisely the effort that is required to get your biceps to look like that so if I and so it's it's the the I think it's important to Without any religious bullshit or or dogmatism, because I, I, I'm you know all of this is is anchored to my experience, but I think it's important to give people an expectation of just what what success looks like and what what is actually there to be noticed. And so I, I, there's more of that that comes into my my instruction than it, than is normal. And, and I think some people find that very valuable, but some people can find it well, distracting. Well, so what's interesting, so. To what what is very useful about the normal vipassana uh, approach that you've described is to remove expectations. I think that yeah. that is a, an obstacle to developing a, a successful habit. Just to like if you if you have this expectation and all of a sudden you've been meditating for four months and it's not happening for you, then you're more likely to give it up. And so I found again, I only have experience with the ten percent happier one. They're really good about just this is a habit. They they approach it like they would approach basketball practice or you know piano practice. There's going to be frustrating times. There's it that it doesn't matter. Just do the thing and we'll talk yep. about where we're going later. In some ways, I think one of the reasons I've been able to appreciate your app is that I've been doing it and I've developed the habit. With the habit in place, I'm ready to have more of the expectations and more ready to think about why I'm doing it. Now, I don't know because I can't run my life over again and and start with your approach. But I do think there was something valuable about removing the removing expectations and just telling me to do the thing because it's an intrinsically enjoyable and relaxing and nice thing to do anyway, you know. Yeah, well, and that that's all fine. I, I agree with that. It's just that well, the truth is, it's it's when you go on intensive retreat in that tradition you're given a different set of expectations and it's one where it's one that i think is is um uh, it's ultimately misleading right so you're the in in that tradition uh you're given the 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 expectation that there's really nothing you can notice about consciousness in this moment that represents uh true freedom Right, you're 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 not. There's nothing. The, the mind of the Buddha can't be recognized right now, coincident with with an ordinary uh, perception. 
Um, and this is again, this to speak specifically of the kind of the Burmese tradition of vipassana that has been so influential in the West. And you're given a sense that that freedom or enlightenment is very far away, and that really the only thing you can do is be very patient and give up all expectation of getting there anytime soon and just pay attention to what's arising in this moment. And that, given that framing, what's arising in this moment, it, it can become a kind of, um, you know, it, it, I mean, this, this also just falls out of the, this notion of dukkha or unsatisfactoriness. Basically, you all there is to notice here is the evidence of your unenlightenment. You're, you're, you're left with a kind of vigil that is, is implicitly, uh, at least, if not explicitly, waiting for something to happen. There's, there's no reason to pay attention to the breath, yeah. really, unless you're waiting for some improvement, you know. And, and this improvement, again, in the, in the context of intensive retreat, there, there's, there's a, this, you know, there's this phenomenology of, of, of kind of schlepping up the mountaintop of, of mindfulness and having some really strange things about your experience happen and, and change, and the the point of all of that is to uproot neg uproot negative emotions. Or do we hey. do we have to do something about a dog or uh, Charlie talking? Yeah. Does does that dog speak English? There's no amount of training practice that like it's a UPS truck. There's nothing I can do. Right. Like oh, parked yeah. outside. Our house. A, a, a super stimulus. Yeah. Yeah. You know, right. I, I want to also say like I agree, Tamler, that the some there's some reason to do it and that it's a pleasurable activity. But I like for anybody who might share my experience, sometimes it's really not pleasurable. Sometimes yeah, I can't wait until that whatever ten twelve minutes is up. Like I find myself. Um, uh, you know what happened to me the other day, Sam, the one and only time I've had a technical problem with your app, I was listening and, and meditating and you go through obviously long pauses. Cause if you talked throughout, that would be horrible. Right. But, but at some point, I guess the app crashed and I was like, how the fuck long have I been doing this, man? This, and then I, <laughs> I went and looked at my phone and it hit, it hit frozen. I, I felt right. like a sucker, but it can be really, it can be, I, a, a really distressing experience and i've even had it happen that maybe this is because it's working that um that sometimes it it has caused anxiety in me to be that reflective of of what's mm. going on and I, what i one of the things i wanted to ask you um again from the perspective of a noob is is surely this isn't all great i mean you hear people talk about meditation ad nauseum and it's like it's like it's the fucking you know the best thing since cheesecake and and I fear that um, that maybe there are these negative occasional aspects to the experience and to the practice that people are are ignoring um, because they're proselytizing. But I don't know. Right. Yeah. Well, there's a, obviously a lot of hype around mindfulness, and you know, paradoxically, while while I emphasize its connections to science as much as is relevant, I think a lot of the weight that people are putting on uh, new scientific findings around mindfulness is premature. I mean, I, I, I think yeah, because there's nothing, you know, it's like, you know, whether or not mindfulness is good for, for stress reduction or right. boosts your immune system or, you know, staves off cortical thinning or anything else that you, you, for which there is now some data, that that's not the deepest reason to do it. And there's certainly no linear 
correlation between uh, practice and feeling better in one's life uh, in a in a global sense. And and and, and I, I think there are, there are certainly aspects to to becoming more aware of your experience that can be unpleasant on balance, but still represent a positive change in your life. Right. It's like I mean, one example that that uh, I often use here, which many of us have experienced, is certainly the beginning of practice, is that the, the moment you go from being someone who has never even, never even heard of the concept of mindfulness to somebody who's now practicing uh, somewhat, you become aware of features of your own mind that are not flattering and <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you're more aware of them, yeah. right? So you're, you're more aware of how neurotic you are and how self-centered you are and how what, what your actual motives are in, in various relationships and exchanges. And, you know, I mean, I went through one period in my practice where there's no question I, I was just, uh, my self-consciousness was being amplified by practice, mm-hmm. right? It was, it was a kind of a negative I mean, it's it's not true mindfulness. And it's, I mean, I, I just remember I would I would have experiences where I'd, you know, I'd be in a Starbucks or something. I'd, I'd be at, you know engaging a, a stranger at a you know like a cashier would be the, the classic example, and I would just feel I, I was so aware of my uh, mind mm-hmm. that you know it, it was I felt worse in those encounters with other people. I was so aware of my my interpersonal anxiety. Right. And my, um, you know, I, it just it, it, it amplified my neurosis interpersonally for a time, and that's not the, so. So whether you consider that a liability of mindfulness or just a a deviation from actual mindfulness, I don't know. But it, it could be inevitable for some people to experience something like that. And again, that's... the analogy to sports I, I would I often make, which is useful here. You know, it's it's just true that if you get really into exercise, which is generically good for you and to be recommended to almost everybody, you know, you there there are injuries you can have. You know, it didn't feel right to be doing push-ups because you have a bad shoulder or whatever. And there's, but there's just there's no question that the general phenomenon of becoming more fit is is that's the direction of progress for almost everybody. Uh, that's good to hear, though. That's I, I I feel like it's good to know that 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 on your journey that you could have moments like that. I don't know why it's comforting. Yeah, but in terms of a daily practice of you know ten minutes or even an hour, um, I, I think that the the vast majority of people will not experience anything uh, significantly negative from that, apart from you know the. the boredom or, or just you know, the resistance to doing it and the n- not getting deep enough into it to actually see the point of it. I mean, it's, you can just, it, it can spit you out because it just it doesn't seem like a good use of your time in the end because you're not actually uh, having the, the kinds of insights that, that are, are, have been promised. The people who don't think it's a good use of their time are using their other time better than I am. Right. <laughs> you know, one of the reasons why I never had that problem is what would I be doing right now if I wasn't meditating for <laughs> right. half an hour? I, yeah. You know, it's it's it, it's not a huge opportunity cost for me uh, a lot <laughs> yeah. of the time. Um, let, right. Let's transition to this sense of self or this idea of the illusion of self. One yeah. of the things that... I, 
was kind of an epiphany for me was that on having no head, it's not an epiphany in in a permanent way, but that uh, you talk about, you just mention it in one of your guided meditations, this book by Douglas Harding, and then I got it. And it, there's something really powerful about that image and, and in terms of just reorienting your understanding of your experience and, and, and your relation to your experience. It's something I have yet to articulate well, certainly to people around me who haven't read it or who don't feel it. My, like, if I try to explain it to my wife and daughter, they don't, they just get angry or annoyed. Right. But, right. Yeah. Uh, but there's something just so deeply right about it where you take your head to be is actually the entire world that's in your experience right now. There is some line in the book where he says, I've, I lost a head, but I gained a whole world. And there's something totally right about that. If you're just paying attention, again, it's this kind of radical empiricism where forget what you know and what people tell you and what you infer from looking in the mirror or hitting on your head. Just Think about what you're actually experiencing right now, and that that's what you'll find. And there's, yeah, I, I, I don't know how how you've integrated it into your, did it mean anything for you or what it means for you? I speak about Harding in a few places in the app, I think. I think there's actually a lesson on on him. Yeah, I listened on, to that, his, too. Yeah, his analogy uh, on having no head. And he's, he's, that's a great book, and he's written some other books that that have great exercises in them. He's one of these people who came. I mean, he, he came through some traditional door. I think it was mostly Zen. He was studying uh, back in the day. I mean, he was he was pretty early into. I think it was probably in the fifties that he became in, interested in Zen. You know, based on the insights he was having, he had his his own framing and his own analogies and. Um, his own exercises, which are he has his very clever exercises, which help precipitate this this insight. But the the, the basic insight was that it very much anchored to to visual experience. I mean, he was he was looking in the, at the moment he first had it. He was looking at the the Himalayas at a place called Nagarkot in in uh, Nepal, and just looking at the you know this kind of union of of, of snow capped peaks and sky and in his terms, he recognized that he had no head. Um, he, he all, this is an insight he also had with reference to this self-portrait that that um, uh, Ernst Mach drew, where he he, he once drew a a self-portrait uh, which of him lying on a on a chaise lounge, and it, so it included his feet and his legs and his torso and and his arm, uh, but. All of it terminated, kind of. It, it all kind of approaches the you know the camera eye view, and there's no head there. And 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 anyone can notice that notice this about themselves. You look down, you see your body, but you don't. It, it all sort of terminates upward in a place which is not your head, visually speaking. Your head is not a part of the scene. So anyway, Douglas had a very vivid experience of of feeling headless and in place of a head there was just the world yeah uh, and that is a you know it's it's not exactly the same angle of approach that um one takes in zogchen or in in advaita vedanta to, to recognize the selflessness of consciousness but 
you know, I'm convinced that for most people, certainly people who are who are practicing and, and gaining enough mindfulness to to notice the difference between being lost in thought and not, for most people it's good enough, and that this experience of headlessness, this experience of headlessness, really is the the uh, the insight into consciousness that I'm talking about. So ultimately, one's mindfulness could just be of that, of just this this centerlessness to consciousness. Now, I'm sure there there are people who can have this experience, and it doesn't really land in a very clear way, and it's not immediately accessible to them in in subsequent moments. But I mean, the reason why I I, I talk about it to the extent I do is that I, I do think it's it's super useful. Uh, but one thing I should say is, and this is a great point of contact to science and and traditional philosophy and and our Western conversation about this is that uh, other people have noticed Harding, and uh, uh, my friend Dan Dennett and Douglas Hofstetter, who who I don't know, but who's a obviously a very famous cognitive yeah. science scientist, author of Goethe Lescherbach, one of my favorite books. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so they they wrote a book together called The Mind's Eye, and in that book they're discussing various uh, ideas and errors around you know the thinking about. Uh, the mind and the self, and they—they—I don't know how they got to Harding, but they—they they stumbled upon his his book. They—they they just single him out for derision, right? Like this is, and so I just want to read you. I, I just pulled this up. I want to read you what this is now. Douglas Hofstetter writing, uh, I'm sure, with with Dan's uh, uh, approval. Uh, so this is this is what this is what Hofstetter said about the, the experience that that Harding describes in a really beautiful and 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 articulate way and 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 for anyone who's had this experience for anyone who's really who's who understands the project of meditation has tried to meditate and then and and certainly for anyone who's done that and had this experience of headlessness it's just you know there's not a bit of woo or or irrationality in right. in Harding's passage at all right it's just pure empiricism and Hofstetter's reflection on it is quote we have here been presented with a charmingly childish and solipsistic view of the human condition it is something that at an intellectual level offends and appalls us can anyone sincerely entertain such notions without embarrassment yet to some primitive level in us it speaks clearly that is the level at which we cannot accept the notion of our own death. Yeah, that's what's fascinating at, at, at the level of just you know our ideas and our discussion about the mind, you know, rationally, scientifically, philosophically, is that it's possible for two smart guys like like uh, Dan and and um, and Hofstetter to so totally miss Harding's point, right? right. It's, just, it's like, it's just catastrophically so, right? They have no idea what he's talking about. And he's, and it, to my eye, he's given them every opportunity to understand what he's talking about. Right. And so this is a, this is a schism intellectually that, you know, I, I've talked about in various ways for a long time, but it really, I mean, this, this crystallized it in, in, to a, 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 an amazingly satisfying degree. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, especially given that the whole point of it is you are rediscovering a certain level of innocence in how you understand your experience in the world. That is his point. The reason I, I think it's very continuous with what you are describing about the self in the app is this idea that there's no you beyond the contents of your consciousness. That's it. 
that's all there is. And when your eyes are open and you are observing the world, in addition to sounds and sensations and feelings, you're also seeing the world. And, and you say this a lot. There's no you that's inside two pairs of eyes that, that is looking out at it. That's just it. It's this is who you are is your conscious experience. It's they're identical. So am I right that that's how you understand what the self is or a non-illusory self is? It is just identical to everything that we're experiencing consciously. Yeah, I, mean, I would with a couple of caveats. I mean, that one is that there are uses of the term self to which I don't object at all. I mean, it's just it's just natural to to talk about uh, the self in autobiographical terms. Um, and to say that the self is an illusion is not the same thing as saying that people are illusions, right? I'm, so I'm not saying that people don't exist. Um, and I'm not saying, I'm certainly not saying that consciousness has nothing to do with the body or, you know, I'm not, I'm not prejudging any of the, the metaphysical questions about what, you know, how consciousness arises and the self that is illusory and the self that most people feel they have, or most people to, to which most people feel identical is the sense of being a subject in the middle of experience, you know, so that people don't feel that, you know, as a matter of from the first person side, there is simply experience. They feel like they are having an experience. Right. The they thing like to which are, it is happening. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're appropriating it. And they're the, you know, they're in some sense, they're looking over their own shoulder or they're, or they're looking, you know, they're looking out from they're behind their face, you know, so they don't feel like you don't feel identical to your face. You know, you feel like you have a face, but you are something that's behind your face looking out at the world that's other than yourself. And that's the starting point for, for everyone. And that's the and that's the place from which people begin to meditate. And so, you know, most people close their eyes. And the moment you close your eyes, you feel like, you know, you've sort of shut the world out. So the world's out there and you're in in your head behind your eyelids and now you can now when i tell you to pay attention to the breath the breath uh appears whether you whether you focus at, at the tip of the nose or or at your the rising and falling of your abdomen wherever you point your attention you feel like you're pointing your attention from this locus of consciousness in the head to some sensations that are some distance from what you are as the subject who's paying attention. And uh, that is the illusory self, that sense that there's this unchanging center in the middle of consciousness uh, uh, that it that can point attention uh, and that can be the, the source, and this is where the, the free will conversation comes in, and, and it can be the source of intentions, of, you know, an acts of will. That's the thing that, that gets put into question and ultimately um, banished by paying close enough attention to, to what consciousness is like. There's a, um, that's, it's kind of what I was uh, talking about when I was saying the feeling that, that I'm being dislodged, um, mm -hmm. that, that you are kicking that sense, that central sense of self out of me. And, and I, like, I have to admit it can be uncomfortable because I find solace in my my sense of self 
um, I find solace in that, in identifying with that this thing that is experiencing everything and that is the same person from from one time to another. And I don't know well, if I'm I'm. It's just. Well, I would me. question that. I, I would. I, I. You might. I, I know you. You think you do, but I, I yeah. think you're. If you pay closer attention, I think you would find that you don't because it's, I mean, it's just look at all the things you like to do and and when they're when you do them uh in the most re- to, the most rewarding way or when you experience as much reward as you can from those things i think you'll notice that you know anything like a flow state or anything like a a, a true uh truly being captivated by the thing you're paying attention to entails this loss of self but it's it's a loss of self that it, that goes unnoticed and that you can only notice retrospectively i mean it's like if you're watching your favorite movie yeah the the, mo- the most the most satisfying experience of watching that movie is like full loss of of self-consciousness while doing it you don't want to be continually reminded that you're just looking at light on a wall or pixels on a screen you right. just you actually want to be completely absorbed and that complete absorption is is I would argue a, a a loss of this this sense of being located behind your eyes. So okay, so uh, hear so hear me out for a little bit because I, I actually yeah. am totally open to the the possibility that 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 you are right, and I think that I in fact am wrong um, in this resistance. But at the same time, um, there are parts of me that, for instance, to get back to the discussion of uh, your your kids getting older. Um, right. There are times when I exactly don't want that mindless state of flow because what I want is to remember the moment so well that I mm-hmm. am explicitly saying, you are David Pizarro. This is the year 2019. This is a conversation you're having with your daughter. Soak it all in that this is happening to you, David. And yeah. and I find that when I go out of my way to do that, my memories, I, I don't regret so much that I wasn't paying you know, paying attention. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if there's a distinction there to be made, but if anything, being dissolved of the self is exactly to me more like what you said about being reminded that, that I'm watching light bouncing off of a screen. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I, I think I see what you're, you're getting at there and what you're expressing. I mean, certainly in, in, a Buddhist framework is a kind of attachment. I mean, it feels like a t- yeah, attachment right. to yeah, yeah. to you know keeping to certain good parts of life that you are reluctant to see change and fade away. And I mean, this impulse to hold on to vivid memories yeah. is it's an understandable one. But I mean, this is this gets back to the the, the Buddha's teachings around dukkha. It is it is not a reliable source right. of well being. Yeah, right. right. Because yeah. your your memories fade, and the, the the act of entertaining them is so tenuous. I mean, they're just they're just images in the mind. These these fleeting images that that, as we know, are totally unreliable. And and what I find uncanny now are even perfectly reliable images. The the videotapes we have of mm-hmm. our daughters growing up. When I look at those, when I look at the the my my best effort to capture a memory, mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in perfectly accurately and unchanging for all time, I find that a, a, an experience that is again 
uncanny because I it it doesn't it doesn't serve as a real memory for me anymore. I look at the I look at these babies and I have two mm-hmm. daughters, you know, one's five and, and one's ten. When I look at, at video when they were, you know, one and two and, and even three, um they, they are so different from who they are now. Yeah. That like it's like it, it is not even rewarding to see the video. It's <laughs> it, it is a strange uh, experience. Well it's it's poignant though. I don't know. Like I, I feel David's it's, point here in one sense, right? When you say it's not a reliable source of well-being, in some sense it is. In, uh, and, I, and I wouldn't want to lose the attachment to my relationships. In well, any, oh, no, no. Yeah, so I, like, this, is, uh, this is a problem that I've had with stoicism sometimes. But for whatever reason I haven't associated with mindfulness it, and the loss of attachment, even though there's obviously a lot of overlap, but... But yeah, it's it's in diminishing your attachments. Part of some of these attachments are what make life worth living in the first place. And I, I don't see, think that you're denying that, right? Well, I mean, so th- there's no way around the fact that the, the the ultimate success of this project is, when described, can sound strange and, in certain ways, undesirable. Right. So. And uh, you know, I'm not pointing to myself as someone who has taken this this process to its ultimate conclusion. I mean, I'm, I'm not. You know, my mindfulness is is by no means perfect. I am I'm lost in thought certainly most of the time. Uh, you know, I'm not a Buddha, uh, and yet I ha- I've had certain experiences that I can that that are fairly unusual even among meditators, and I can talk about them with authority. But the um, the, there, there's no question that the prospect of being perfectly established in non-dual mindfulness, you know, permanently without a head uh, and permanently without the capacity to be lost in thought, I mean, where, where, as it's described in the Dzogchen tradition, as you know, thoughts are like thieves entering an empty house, right? There's nothing mm-hmm. for them to steal. So like, if you actually become the empty house where there's just there's no place for thoughts to land. That is a a kind of personhood that um, may be incompatible with having a special attachment to one's kids. But then, but then the question is, what what are you actually experiencing? Are, are, you know, what is described in those, uh, you know, certainly in the texts around that, and what many of us have experienced, at, you know, in peak states of of meditation or even on, you know. Drugs like MDMA is, are, are, you know, states of of unconditional love for, you know, all sentient beings. I mean, that that's a, that's a possible. You know, I, I'm I'm quite sure that's a, a possible state of consciousness. And there's certainly a way to argue that that's ultimately more desirable than merely loving your your friends and family members and not caring too much about strangers. Uh, but it does it, it it certainly can sound undesirable when when one is in just in fact uh, you know mightily attached to and focused on one's one's family right but there is there's no question i mean just look at it ethically uh, and we, i think we've talked about this on on a prior podcast about one's special attachment to one's own kids in when juxtaposed to all the good one could do in the world uh 
with all the the the, the rest of suffering humanity. So, the, you know, how am I going to spend the rest of my day? Well, if you told me, you know, it doesn't happen to be true today, but if you told me that, you know, my daughter's birthday was tomorrow and I hadn't bought her a present, well, then I might spend, you know, the next two hours trying to figure out, you know, what, you know, uh, what, you know, crappy piece of plastic made in China, you know, I need to buy her, right? You know, it's like something that really is unimportant, on, no matter how you look at it, right? But, you know, I, she's my daughter. I love her. I want her to be happy. It's her birthday. You know, connect all those dots, dots and I'm going to the toy store to, to shop for some, you know, brightly colored crap. It's all too natural. It's an, it's an, it's inevitable given how we're tending to live. But there really is a place to stand uh, where it, it seems more ethical and more wise to put that whole project into question and say, "Is this really the best use of your time given the the opportunity to to alleviate suffering in this world?" But and, buying her a brightly colored piece of crap from china might not be the best use of your well, time yeah, but, I, I was putting a little top spin on it but <laughs> but spending time with her that where you could be you know devoting that time oh. towards raising money for charitable causes but spending time with them going on a hike or or playing sure you know like those things are precious and no no but even the crap is precious i mean playing just doing legos i mean here that's the crap i had in mind oh, right okay so, so so doing legos with with my five-year-old daughter that's just an awesome use of my time i love it she loves it it's i mean there's no it's it's fantastic but there's um again it's like if, if you told me there's another child i could do that with today yeah right i would be uninterested like I, I, I'm too busy. I, I don't have, I don't have an hour to spend with somebody else's kid to play Legos, right? Uh, because I've got all these things I want to do that that strike me as more important uses of my time. There is something that this special attachment can be challenged, and I think there's there's probably some degree to which it could be relaxed, uh, which we would all recognize as being. Uh, psychologically and morally healthier. Uh, it's just it's just possible not to notice what you, not to know what you're missing uh, in this space. And I, I think that the most important aspect of this, though, is again comes back to suffering and the end of suffering. If you it's like you're you you find yourself in a position where you're suffering, and then the question is, uh, how much do you want to suffer? And you know, I think we're all you know the, the three of us are in a place where we wouldn't want to be completely without suffering because that seems in incompatible with love, right? If you tell me my yeah. daughter died, and I but my mindfulness is so good that I'm not suffering, okay, that's that seems somehow like a, a cold, a, a, a cul-de-sac I don't want to be in, right? You know, that's like you're telling me my mind, my mindfulness has made me a a psychopath on some level. Have ever I've never experienced that kind of detachment from you know ordinary emotions and. And I've certainly experienced, you know, my 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 experience among great, you know, meditation masters has not been one of meeting cold and and perfectly detached people. I mean, these are for the most part very joyful, very engaged people who, and you know, many of whom I've seen, you know, spontaneously weep, but you know, often from you know joy and compassion, you know, when interacting with other people. So it's not. It's not like there's you become a, a stone Buddha uh, the, the more you meditate. 
right. You have to live in this world. Like I don't, you know, I, the way that my naive mind understands it is that you sort of, you destroy and you rebuild on a different foundation, right? It's like, whatever, you know, you realize mm. the tea ceremony is just a tea ceremony, but, but you still have tea. I don't know. I, right. I it strikes me that that can be a balance. Pro- it, it is a little paradoxical though, to go into this kind of practice for the sake of reducing my own suffering and coming out on the other side, thinking, focusing on, on my own experience is wrongheaded. But the question is, what does that mean? I mean, so, so for most people, it's synonymous with also being a better parent, a better friend, yeah. a better spouse, because your, your unhappiness is toxic, right? It's like, yeah. it, like you're, it, the thing you notice is that your anger and your insecurity, your anxiety just bleeds into everyone else's experience. You're constantly expressing it. You're communicating it somehow. You're judging people because they're, they're making you uncomfortable, you know, and, and you're, you're not good company, right? So it's, it's, a, it's a, it's, it may sound selfish to want to reduce your own suffering, but when you think of how you can be better for the people you love most in the world, to say nothing of the, the strangers who also have to, to interact with you, you know, out in public, um, it's, it's of a piece with being truly selfless. I mean, you're, you're, there, there's, it's not zero sum. You really. Yeah. I mean, if they can focus, if, if I, I mean, it, it is a little paradoxical because one of the things, one of my goals is to be able to deepen the time that I spend with the people that I love. And when I'm spending it with them, that's what I'm focused on. I'm not thinking about what somebody said on Twitter and I'm not thinking about, you know, what I, what happened earlier that day or what's going to happen tomorrow or, or anything yeah. like that. I am focused on what we're doing right now, but it's with them, you know, it's with these people and that's, that's important to me. And so it would be a kind of a sad irony if it ended up diminishing my attachment to those people, which I was in some sense trying to deepen or at least improve the quality of our day-to-day interactions. Well, yeah, so those, I think, can be quite distinct. Attachment is not synonymous with quality. In fact, attachment is the thing that I would say reliably reduces quality because it would just you know, so quality is is a matter of attention and and freedom on your side, right? So you're you're free of so you just you, you picture you know what it's like to have your your daughter or son if you have one come home from school, right? So you know, and and you're you're talking to her about how how the the day went and you know what you did you know how how was the test and all of that stuff. Um, you know, what, what's going to make this a, a perfectly satisfying experience, uh, and wherein you are exactly the kind of father you want to be, uh, and you get all the feedback that you are that type of father from your daughter, uh, and what's going to make it a, a, a lousy experience and attachment is not going to, at least in in most senses of that term, is going to bias it toward the lousy, right? I mean, just think of all the ways in which your attachment, your special attachment to your child 
can make you, um, you know, judgmental and impatient and worry about the kind of person they're going to become. Right. You're putting pressure on them that is completely pointless. Uh, you're communicating conditional love rather than unconditional love. Like all of it, it all goes sideways uh, based on those variables. Whereas if you just, I mean, if you're really in touch with what a miracle it is to just be standing in front of this person who you're, who's sharing your life and you're in touch with just how much you you love her and how beautiful that moment is, it's a very different type of attention. And it's it's really, it's, the thing is, you can't hold on to it, right? Right. I mean, you, all you can do is have it again in the next moment, based on on your your free attention. And this, this is why mindfulness is a kind of panacea because it is. It's not a matter of holding on to this thing that you can't possibly hold on to. It's a matter of of giving the next moment, whatever it is, yeah. your full attention. And Tambler, maybe if uh, if we got to that level, we could be more uh, polyamorous and compersive. <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> hey, yeah. hey, guys, I I completely forgot I have a heart out at four, in fifteen minutes um, okay. to take my daughter uh, somewhere. Apologize. Well, now now you don't need to. You, might, you could be taking somebody <laughs> yeah. else's daughter. Now you can be the my... the psychopath who's, who's, who stands up <laughs> your daughter because you had to do a podcast. <laughs> Uh, so maybe we should talk about this idea of dissolution of self. You say you've had these experience both on psychedelics, I take it, but also not. Yeah, well, so the, the, the usual experience as a meditator uh, is that you see you're, you're you look into that you're, you're told that the self might be an illusion and that if you pay attention to experience it, you know, this rigorous way you might notice that and uh people often have you know brief experiences uh wherein you know you're they're paying attention to the breath say which is a very common technique to start with and you know for the longest time it feels like you know they're up there in their head struggling to pay attention to the breath but there can be brief experiences where they're paying such close attention to the breath that for brief moments, there, there's just the breath, right? There's no observer and thing observed. There's just breathing, right? There's just this, there's the union of <clears throat> consciousness with its object. And then that moment goes away and immediately thoughts come online and you think, okay, oh, that was it. Oh, that was it. Okay. How do I get back? I did it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did it. Yeah. It's working. It's working. <laughs> yeah. And, and people can have that experience you know, many, many times, hundreds of times, thousands of times. Yeah. But it can feel it's it's transitory and it can feel like it it's totally haphazard when it comes. Right. right. It's like like this, you can't make it happen on demand. It's just the kind of thing that you have to create the conditions for. And the conditions are concentration and and and, you know, this deliberate effort to pay attention. Um, and that's one sort of stage of mindfulness practice. And that stage, I think, persists for far too long for most people, right? I mean, that That's that was my true. Stage. Of, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was true of me for years, and it was true of me even after I had spent something like a full year on silent retreat, right? I had done retreats of oh, you know wow. t ten days long or, or you know three months long, and even after uh, basically a year of that, uh, 
you know, it was still not true of me to say that that every moment of mindfulness was a moment of selfless of of, of being aware of of the selflessness of consciousness, um, which is to say, I couldn't take selflessness itself as the object of my mindfulness. I, I, I couldn't I couldn't notice that that quality of consciousness on demand, and it wasn't until I started practicing. Uh, Zogchen practice, which is a, a, a Tibetan practice, uh, that I was able to do that. And that's, I mean, the paradox of Zogchen practice is that it is a practice. I mean, it is something that you then practice, you then do, but you can't start it until you can actually just recognize this about consciousness on demand. I mean, that is what, that, that's where it starts. I mean, the, 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 the ordinary mindfulness practice can start anywhere you happen to be, which is, you know, you're just thinking that maybe meditation is worth looking into, and I tell you to pay attention to your breath, and there you go, there you've started, now you're meditating. It doesn't matter where you are, you, you can, there's a starting point that's available to, to anyone. Um, but with Dzogchen, you actually can't start until you can notice that consciousness has no center. And then, then, then the practice is to be mindful of that. So I've been both sorts of people. I've been the I've been the person who you know, on psychedelics or on retreat or in in my daily practice, I've had this spontaneous loss of self, and then I've been struggling to get back to that. And then I've been then I eventually became the kind of person for whom mindfulness was synonymous with it being obvious that that there is no self in the center of consciousness. But to be clear, that's not the end of that's not you know, so-called full en- full enlightenment. That's not that's the beginning of some other process. That's not um, it's not a permanent state because again, as I said, I spend most of my time lost in thought. Right. So in, in the moments when I'm lost in thought, I'm just like you know an ordinary person who's not meditating. But the the, the difference is, the moment I become mindful. My mindfulness is synonymous with the loss of that feeling of self. So I, I can continually punctuate my ordinary uh, neurosis with a, a, this experience of centerlessness. And uh, that it really matters because it is it is the, the the true corrective to the the dream of of suffering that that was present fully present a moment ago um and so it it does become a it becomes a it is a real antidote to negative emotion because you know if if you can do that in the midst of anger or any other negative emotion it really does undercut it in a, and if it undercuts its basis fundamentally and one of the landmarks of of successful mindfulness practice is to is to actually you know Get off the ride, uh, you know, of negative mo- of emotion quickly. You know, it's like if someone, you know, if you're if you're having a bad reaction to something, and you're really wound up, you know, if you know if your wife or, or or somebody turns to you and says, "Okay, stop being angry right now," right? Like, right, your life. If your life depends on you no longer being angry ten seconds from now, can you do that? Right. Most people can't do that. Actually, it's not, that's not quite true. Most people can do it, but they just don't know they can do it. Like they can be just a, I mean, the example that, that was made vivid to me at one point is that, um, I, I think I was, you know, wound up about something and, 
Uh, but then I got a call, uh, a phone call I had to take, and it was you know from somebody w- with whom I could not download my my you know emotional life at all. It was like a business call, or like I saw, I just had to actually be a normal person for this call rather than complaining about what just happened. Um, and I just noticed the the effortlessness of the shift where, you know, the phone rang, I picked it up, somebody who did not want to hear about my neurotic bullshit was on the other other end of the line, and I could just instantly transition into a normal conversation wherein the actual negative emotions completely dissipated and, and could, would then have to be picked up again when the call was over. Um, and I think most people recognize in themselves that they have that capacity, but you know, to be able to do it on demand when you're, when, you know, it, it is something that you actually can do once you know, truly know how to meditate. So in the little time I have left, can I ask you that general question of, uh, you, 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 you do seem pretty good at maintaining this, this even keel emotionally. And, and I'm just, I'm, I'm very curious to know as to whether you were like this before, um, you started uh, this practice meditation or or has this drastically improved the way that you handle these things and and i can't help but bring up that classic clip of ben affleck getting mad at you because in the face of that yelling i don't know how i could have kept my composure um well i'm not i experience every emotion i've ever experienced it's just the the half-life is cut way down so it's you know I get angry all the time I get anxious all the time I mean it's it's always that, that stuff is always happening to me but the moment I notice it in uh, the moment the moment it becomes intense enough so that it captures my attention like this okay this is suboptimal to, to be this way um, then it then I can let go of it you know so I I, it, I can I can decide you know how angry i want to be or you know whether i want to still be motivated by the it's a bit of a paradox here because you know these are useful emotions it's not that i think you you want to be perfectly free of anger and fear and and classically negative emotions because they're they're signals about something in the world which and they're energizing right i think it's appropriate to feel moral outrage and it's so so the, the kind of the punctate intrusion of negative emotion into our lives um, it isn't necessarily bad, but the question is, how long do you want to keep it alive by ruminating about it? You know, how how wound up do you want to be a half hour later? And um, you know, meditation does give you the ability, at least at a certain point, to decide. I mean, it gives you. I mean, again, this is this is no concession to the the free will debate, but. Yeah. Uh, it, it gives you it gives you a kind of skill, right? To, that you can you can actually you can do something that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do, which is just decide to let go of of a whole complex of, of thought and and reactivity that is has been making you feel miserable. That's yeah, well, that's that's great to know. But I I uh, want to just clear clarify this with you. We can title the this episode "Sam Harris Believes in Free Will." Is that, yeah. is that, yeah. <laughs> is that... Uh, last question? Um, yep. I'm wondering how open you are to a kind of 
I don't know if you call it panpsychism or something where the fundamental thing is consciousness rather than matter. Given how much you emphasize that our only evidence is conscious experience, that is the, the, the thing that is that seems to be underlying everything f from our perspective in terms yeah. of how we connect with with the world. And, you know, in our earlier conversation, you were saying you didn't want to prejudge the relationship between matter and the mind. You were agnostic for the purposes of what you were saying about that. But I'm wondering, gun to your head, about the metaphysics of what's going on, which way you lean. Are you purely materialist and you just mm. figure that at some point we're going to figure out how this happens? Or are you more open to the metaphysical reality be something different than the normal physicalist scientific way of understanding it. No, I, I'm definitely open to it. I, I think I'm just agnostic about it. I don't know what would be different if uh, certain forms of panpsychism were true or, or what would seem different. And I, mean, I certainly wouldn't expect coarse-grained material objects to behave differently. Right, you know, if 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 there was something that it was like to be an electron, say, um, and I, so I, I'm really, you know, I, I just I don't know what would, what falsifiable statement could be put forward that would decide the matter. Um, so I, I may be agnostic in a pretty deep sense in that, that I would I could be easily convinced that this the difference here is unknowable. Right. I mean, whether there's some kind of neutral monism that that would would give us a different language with, for which to talk about the mind-body problem. I don't know. I mean, as you know, I'm very convinced that the hard problem really is a hard problem. Yeah. Um, but um, my, my wife, Annika, is super open to panpsychism. She just wrote this book uh, about consciousness uh, that's coming out in a few weeks. And she, you know, she defends, uh, she doesn't go so far as to, you know, throw her lot in with panpsychism entirely, but she, she gives it a, a fairly proper defense and it is it's in, it's interesting to just question why it's so counterintuitive i mean why you feel that you have the intuition that the world couldn't possibly be that way uh, but yeah i don't i'm i'm just you know agnostic and uh um I, i'm not sure what would decide the matter yeah that's interesting you know some of the other views that you hold um would seem like someone might predict if they didn't know this other side of you that you would be a kind of Dennett-like materialist, maybe even an eliminativist about consciousness. Right. And right. That, that that clearly is not what's going on. The, you're the opposite of an eliminativist when it comes to yeah. consciousness. No, no, yeah. no I'm, I'm possibly an eliminativist with respect to everything else. <laughs> right. So, yeah, you know, it's like I mean, my line is that consciousness is the one thing in this universe that can't be an illusion, um, and that's a. It's not quite. It, it's a. It's a semi-Cartesian starting point, but it, it's not quite. The the it's not. It's not what Descartes is usually taken to mean in any case. Yeah. Uh, so, because he's so yeah. he's defining a self that's doing. Yeah, that, or he certainly seems to be. Yeah, yeah, he seems to be. Uh, yeah. All right. Well. Uh, thank you, Sam. This has been cool. totally very informative. I think different than some of our other conversations in a good way. 
Uh, yeah. Well, well, no fighting. We didn't fight this time. No, next time. We have some <laughs> okay. stuff to fight about. There's some intellectual dark web stuff that I'm sure we disagree oh. about, but uh, we'll have to uh, save that. Oh, don't, don't be so sure. Oh, well, well, maybe maybe we do, but uh, I, I'm not, as I, you may know, I'm not the the biggest fan of the, the term, and, and it's always been sort of tongue-in-cheek from my point of view, but yeah, other people take it more seriously. No, I, I, yeah. I believe that. Thanks, Sam, for okay. coming on. Really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Always an honor and, and fun. The